y'all, and welcome to a special season of Abolitionist Lent Bible Study. Uh, this Lenten season, we have been inviting people across traditions and mediums to explore themes of revelation, disruption, examination, and embodiment in ways that will support a larger faith movement, reimagining restorative solutions to community safety, health, and wellness. Our definition of abolition means not just the closing of prisons and ending of policing, but also putting in place the vital systems of support that many systems are systematically, many communities are systematically disenfranchised from. Abolitionist Lent is a collaboration between three organizations and some awesome folks, including Fellowship of Reconciliation, More Light Presbyterians, and the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship, and additional thought partners of Reverend Lindsay Anderson, Miles Markham, Minister Candace Simpson, and Reverend Ananda Barclay. You have been invited to join us throughout the Lenten season as we've defined, explored, reflected, and taken action to further the inbreaking of abolition into this world. Today, uh, in particular, on Trans Day of Visibility, I am really honored to be exploring the Good Friday text of John 18. We're going to shorten it to verses 1 through 12 through the theme of being faithful in the small things with Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza. Robin, it's great to see you again um, and have you with us. It's good to be here. Um, I have always enjoyed our time together. And even though we are neighbors on some level, uh, we don't get to see each other uh, very often. And so it's good to be here. That's right. Yes, um, absolutely. I echo all of that. So before we dive into our reading, we want to begin by introducing ourselves more fully our, by our name, our pronoun, work, and identities, because we know we always bring those with us whenever we encounter biblical texts as and anything in life. But let's not forget when we encounter scripture. Uh, Dr. Robin, would you be willing to kick us off with that? Sure. My name is Robin Henderson Espinosa. My affirming pronouns since... Uh, about 2009 um, have been they, them. And last fall, I started thinking about, um, do I want to expand that to include he? Um, so sometimes I'm he, they, sometimes I'm they, them. Um, most times I'm just Dr. Robin, but, um, and, uh, you know, my work in the world is uh, doing theology as harm reduction and um, composting supremacy culture. I'm trained as a theologian and ethicist. And, um, you know, I fell in love with the discourse of theology and ethics as an undergrad at a small Baptist university, um, which is part of my identity. I've been trained by Catholics and, um, Methodist folk and am, am trans identified and queer in orientation and the child of a Mexican immigrant um, and um, a mixed race Latinx. Um, I think that's what I would say right now. I, I let me also say I'm I'm not a biblical scholar. I, I read the Bible as a theologian, and I I always like to preface that because you know. I don't want to step on the toes of my biblical scholar friends, you know, because um, 
you know, they do a very particular thing. And I know my lane as a theologian and ethicist. And so I will read the text as such. Amen to that shout out. Definitely not a biblical scholar myself either. Um, thankful for their work that allows us to read as deeply as we do. Um, so I'm Alex Patchen McNeil and my pronouns are he and him. And I love the expansiveness of the trans movement that allow us to explore our pronouns at, at stages of our life. And so I appreciate you naming that, Robin, with your own discernment around what yours are and have been. Um, and uh, I live in Asheville, North Carolina and serve as director at More Light Presbyterians. And being the host of this conversation over these past weeks and year has been such a joy. And so Robin and I got to early days uh, have Liberation Bible Study together in 2018. So I'm so thankful to have you back on the, in this conversation again. Yeah. And, um, you know, I am a white transgender man and, you know, in a day of visibility uh, for trans folks and trans identities, you know, it was, it was the visibility of other trans and non-binary people that allowed me to claim my full self. And so I, as much as I can, you know, try and uh, stay as visible as I can be <laughs> in the places and spaces that, that I exist so that hopefully there's more room made for others to come after me. Um, really feeling that legacy today, especially as we're facing yet another round of malicious um, legislation and, and violence across the board. So um, I think to, what a time to dig into a Good Friday text, Robin. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think, I think we're to a good point to, to start that. So as you- Can I just say one thing? Yeah. Um, and that is, it, you know, it's Trans Day of Visibility. And when I was sort of in the middle part of my PhD program, you were my boss um, and you humanized me as a trans person, as a non-binary person. Like that language really wasn't in the, the cultural sphere. It wasn't, it wasn't common for people to be using they, them pronouns. Non-binary wasn't even in the imagination. Um, and, and you just honored me. And um, I don't know that I've ever said that to you, but on a, on a day like today, I think visibility happens in lots of different ways, not just seeing people, but the act of being seen. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like you have seen me in lots of different ways um, and, you know, sought to hold the nuance and complexities of all of all of it. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you. I received that. I received that. Yeah. The I think the thing that I try and help folks who want to be more active allies to trans and non-binary folks learn is that the first thing we can do even before we have to know all the terms and identities and all the literal definitions of things is like we can humanize someone, we can see someone and honor them. And, and um, it's no small act. Um, it is, a, it can be a small act that, that is a, that has a huge impact. Um, but it is an ongoing commitment that we can see each other 
And um, I'm, I'm grateful I got to be with you in that, in those days and, and onwards. So should I read the first 12 verses? Yes. So let's start with John 18 verses 1 through 12. And in the first reading, we really notice what's going on in the passage or what stands out to us, especially as we're meditating on this theme of being faithful in the small things Robin, that you brought to us. Um, so, yes. Please so um, this, is, this is John chapter 18, the first 12 verses. After Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detach, detachment, detachment or det. Is that a French word or detachment? Detachment. I think it's yeah, detachment. yeah. Is it detachment or is it detachment? So Jesus brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, whom are you looking for? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you are looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the father has given me? So the soldiers, their officer, and the Jewish police arrested Jesus and bound him. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I'm still very curious about detachment. <laughs> detachment of soldiers. That's a very interesting way to say that. Yeah, that is really interesting. I, I hadn't even, I'd sort of scanned over that part with everything else going on. I mean, there's a lot going on, but I, you know, translation, we always, there's so many decisions and choices that go into translating and, you know, politics and whatnot. And so it's very interesting. Yeah. If, as a not biblical scholar, I wonder if a detachment is like, th this is the band of the, of the military that can travel around. They're not, they're not in their full company. Right. So this is a small, the small things, a small company of, yeah. of soldiers that have 
left the bigger the, one. The mobile unit. The mobile unit. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so we did our first reading and we're answering the question, what is going on in this passage and what stands out to us? Yeah. So there are a lot of moving parts. Um, we've got some really interesting um, language um, of people of sort of othering like mm -hmm. there's Jesus and then the them and so the sort of processing of othering and um, and then the sort of impact of of that because they fall to the ground you know so there's there's the othering happening and then also sort of the awe mm -hmm. um, happening simultaneously. Um, you know, but obviously this is a story um, where we see a fuller picture of Jesus, I think, that, um, you know, previous to this, Jesus outfoxed the empire. And, and Jesus actually allowed himself to be found mm. yeah and i think we often don't say that yeah and that's really powerful it's like i mean right before this there's all the indication that jesus knows this is coming mm -hmm. and i think the gospel the writer john you know in the gospel of john um wants you to know that jesus knows this isn't an accident that that he's, that he's, yeah, he's not trying to escape or not trying to outbox them. He's, he's speaking very clearly and directly. And, and what I noticed in, in what you just offered is even when he speaks clearly and directly, it's still all inspiring. It's still like there is an awe moment because we've seen other ways in which Jesus has caused awe in people um, and this kind of directness being another way Jesus is like I know I will speak directly to the empire in this moment yeah yeah and I, I think I think the other other thing is that there's lots of different categories of others we've obviously got sort of um empire um people soldiers the mobile unit the police um in that in that there seems to be some relationship between the military mobile unit and the religious people and the teachers mm. and i would say um that remain, remains true today right um the sort of complicitness in these systems that accelerate harm yeah um uh, you know and then and then and then you you also i think you see sort of the finality or the totality of judas the betrayer hmm. yeah and as someone who watched judas and the black messiah when it first came out and then had a community call about it, it, it puts it into a different context for me. Mm -hmm. Mm 
yeah, do you want to say a little more about that just to underline it? Well, I, I think that, you know, this, this call to be faithful in the small things is really a call to the Judas in all of us. Um, we have no networks of trust in the world. And because we don't have any networks of trust, we have no conditions for networks of solidarity. Mm. And because there are no networks of solidarity, there is no way to have networks of belonging. Mm. And I think right now there's a, there's a deep call um, for all of us, not just, not just Black Indigenous people of color, but for the dominant culture, for white-bodied folks to be aware not only of the internalized bullshit or the internalized supremacy culture, but how have we internalized our own practices of betraying ourselves and others? And, you know, I understand this is Holy Week and that is triggering for people who have religious trauma and also the relationship we have with self and other will dictate what our cultural body enfleshes. And I think that we've got to pay attention to even the micro acts of betrayal. You know, and, and this, this happens, this is a manifestation of the, of the demise of networks of trust. And I, you know, I think that, you know, when I was told in 2015, I'm disconnected from my roots, that, 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 that disconnecting from my roots is a type of betrayal. And my return home to the South was a way to compost that betrayal, to be faithful in the small things. And, and I, I think that I think that 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 is something um, that is also happening here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this text. I mean, the 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 writer of John basically writes a little screenplay for us that that follows the action very closely and. Also, I think Holy Week is, is made up of some big actions, huge. We're cutting off an ear in this text. We're like betraying someone very visibly in, in this text. Jesus is standing down an army in this text. And yet I really appreciate you noticing and, and paying, helping us pay attention to the small things because that is something that I've really I really um, try to internalize in my in my learning of abolition, you know, like kind of deepening my relationship to abolition right. is how how much the micro does impact the macro, mm -hmm. and that our abolitionist journey does start with ourselves. It has to be some internal work. Our work of anti-racism also is, you know you know, further back in that, like internalized work, the, I, I appreciate also you naming composting, um, 
how are we turning over the soil that has solidified in us, that's been tamped down because of white supremacy? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, when we think about abolition, everyone, you know, this is why people don't like this term because they don't know that they don't know the history of the term. The, the, the history of the term comes from the practice of what I call creating life affirming systems. It's not just about dismantle, dismember, deconstruct. It's abolition is actually about creation. And we, abolition first starts with ourselves. If we don't create a life affirming system with ourself, we cannot do that with anyone else. And then we can't create a network of, of affirmation. Yeah. 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 It, I think some of the most impactful and powerful teachers of like that depth of divinity wisdom that I've ever met, you can tell have a deep love for themselves that, is, that isn't just self, you know, serving right. yourself right. um, centered, but it, you can tell that the seed of it starts there okay. and how many systems work their hardest to rip us away from ourselves. Yeah. yeah. So I, so I, I think that is happening here, you know, because you see Jesus standing firm in who he is, which in and of itself is a sort of profound affirmation in the face of destruction. Yeah. Yeah. Even in the other gospel texts, you see Jesus wrestling with this moment. You don't see that as much here in John, but you see Jesus like, does it have to be me? Is it really, is it really going to come to this, God? That's a very internal wrestling. Yeah. And then when it comes time to face these moments, Jesus is very grounded in who he is, who, who, whose he is, who, who's God. Um he follows, you know, and I think that does show a real depth of, of belief in, in himself and in the God who created him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if it's, if it's time to move to our second reading to look at resistance. Yeah. So yeah. when we read the text a second time, we're listening for how the text calls us to resistance. And each episode, I, I nuance resistance two ways. One is the resistance of empire and status quo and oppression. Where does the text give us a glimpse of what that could look like? But the other that's equally valid and important is when, if we sense an internal resistance, that there's something in us that says, ooh, I don't know about this word. I don't know about this part of the text. Um, exploring that has become a really powerful small thing to illuminate the larger thing of the text. So I invite whichever arises in us, we can name and, and see where it takes us in conversation. But I'd be happy to read it through this time. Yeah. Um, Thank you. And I'll be reading the 
Revised Standard Version, John 18, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden, where he, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, whom are you looking for? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you are looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the father has given me? So the soldiers, their officer, and the Jewish police arrested Jesus and bound him. It's interesting to me listening to me read that and then listening to you read it. And, you know, just the, you know, voice and inflection and, you know, it, it brings the text alive in a new way. Mm. So I like that. Yeah. Well, what shall you go first? Well, this is called something did come to me and I'm curious what what you might think of this. And it speak so I noticed the the use of who of whom. I got very paid close attention to the use of whom. And my memory of grammar is that we use whom when we don't know the subject, when we don't know of whom we are speaking. So it, you know, because I know you, Robin, I would say who instead of whom. And then that speaks to your thing about othering. Yeah. And how, what, to me, what the text is trying to say here is that these people who came after Jesus didn't truly know him. Right. And I think that speaks very directly to one of the reasons resistance has to exist is that ignorance of people's humanity, blindness about people's humanity or, or not seeing someone's full humanity or, and who they are, the depth of who they are can allow someone to the place of othering them, right? To like, let's say, pass on some laws that restrict them from participating in sports or using the restroom that corresponds with their gender identity, for example, right. or, you know, and on and on and on. And it's the difference between who and whom is where resistance 
moves to relationship. Yeah, you know, at, when I look at verse four, I want to try this out on you. Okay. Because, because I think there's another layer of resistance happening. In verse four, the writer says, then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, whom are you looking for? I think this is pointing to not only did the mobile unit not know Jesus, but Jesus also did not know them. And what I mean by that is it says here, Jesus, knowing all that was, hap was to happen to him, we would have to look at the Greek for this, which I didn't do before I came on here. That that would have been smart to do, but I've been going. Well, that's outside of the bounds of our conversation. <laughs> if anyone knows it, put it in the chat. Um, there, there is a possibility that Jesus, um, or that there is a depiction that, you know, it's a sort of foreshadowing, right? Jesus had a sense about what was going to happen, but Jesus did not know these people, mm. and these people did not know him, which means there was no relationship because Jesus was in relationship with lots of people, but contested the, the empire, yeah. and so it is that the the lack of relationship actually an active resistance on the part of Jesus like our could could we could we see that Jesus is also resisting mm. these folks in this question which indicates a lack of connection, a lack of relationship. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So Jesus is deliberately not knowing, divesting perhaps from yeah. this community. And we know Jesus is capable of forming connection and relationship at a well, across on the side of the road, mm -hmm. you know, in the space and span of five or six words, but here is Jesus. Like, I'm going to stay, I'm staying distant. Yeah. The, the other thing that really struck me about that is Jesus knowing what was going to happen to him. I think there's a piece of that too, of Jesus also knew what could happen if he, like they came with weapons. This could turn even uglier than it already is on the breadth, you know, like in the space of a micro second. And he knows what the empire will do and has done to people around him. And I see Jesus also trying to hold it together to say, I, I'm, 
I'm going to be the only one who gets arrested tonight. Not these guys that are with me. Like in the, in the image here, they're in this garden, they're in an open space, they're not knocking on the door. But to me, there's like a surrounding, they're surrounding Jesus and the, and the disciples in the garden. And I kind of see Jesus sort of like using his body in between the, the um, detachment and the disciples to say, one, yeah, like what you were talking about, I'm not forming a relationship with you, but I'm also not let, gonna let you just right. turn this into a massacre. I, I'm always struck by, I, I have an internal resistance um, to the, the language high priest slave. Yeah. Uh, and, and we wonder why there's a need for abolition theology right it's because of shit like that because there again you know i i preached i preached in atlanta several weeks ago um uh, they were starting an abolition series and i did a genealogy of justice a lot of people don't you know they just sort of assume that social justice is like an invention that we've created in the 20th century and justice has a very particular genealogy and one of the things that is important to know about this concept of justice theologically and philosophically is it depends on a free class mm. and so i mean there's lots of things that we could talk about that yeah. but when i read this language the high priest's slave, it, it again tells me we have got a very long history of being complicit in enslavement. Yeah. And, and that religious people in particular feel, sense, or believe that they are the ultimate free class. Mm. And that there, there has been so much damage because of that internalization. And so I just have an immediate internal resistance to that phrase because it just brings up all the shit that you and I are trying to compost. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, as I was reading it kind of before we got on, my thought was, it, first of all, I don't really think about the disciples as carrying swords normally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is, that does not square with how I, I was trained in Sunday school to right. think about the disciples on my little felt well, this is like game of thrones you this know is some game of thrones mess and um but how to me the like one of one of the pieces of it is how misdirected simon peter is in attacking this enslaved person his anger is with the empire mm -hmm. and yet he goes after the most marginalized person that he knows he'll probably be able to get away with doing something horrible too. Um, he didn't try and, and 
cut off the ear of the of the chief of the detachment. Um, right. He went after the enslaved person. Now, I will say, I really appreciate the author of this text name giving the enslaved person a name. Right. Of all the of all the others, mm -hmm. the enslaved person is the only one that has a name other than Jesus and Simon Peter and Judas. But um, so like, that's interesting to me. Um, but to me, it's Simon Peter also, yeah, that complicity and just falling prey to seeing other humans as disposable as he's trying to protect this one that he believes is indisposable. Right. Mm. Yeah, I have. I, I am sensing some internal resistance around even the naming of the slave, not because it's not important to name marginalized people, but what what is the purpose of doing that? You know, it's like these people who have um, parties or wedding parties at um, plantation homes. It, it feels a little bit like that to me. Mm. And it, it, I mean, I can hold the both and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it, it feels a little bit like that. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, we're not so bad. He had a name. Here yeah. it is. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I chose even this, you know, I wanted to focus on these first 12 verses of a common Good Friday text and story because I often skip through this part, you know, to get to the other scenes of, of this night, just like, oh yeah, Jesus was arrested. But slowing down this action, noticing all the, the moving, the, the small things that added up to the big thing of his arrest, um, I'm just very conscious of the work of resistance. And to me, in, in the moments of resistance, like if we go so fast, you know what I mean? Like when it's action time, when we're in crisis mode, right. we are moving so quickly that I know for me, holding all the small details or the small noticings can get lost. But this to me, this whole text is a reminder of how much can happen in the span of moments. And like you were saying, the paying attention to moments, to moments, to moments. And I think Peter shows, Simon Peter shows over and over again, he just loses control or he forgets, you know, he abandons Jesus, you know, says, I don't know him in the next part of this text. Um, right after he just tried to kill somebody for him, you know, like, wow, um, moment to moment, our, our values and what we're trying to uphold are being tried and tested in the sense of like, do you really believe it? Do you really believe it? How much do you believe it? Yeah. Shall we move to look at abolition in this text? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to read it through again? Yeah, I'll read it through. So again, this is John chapter 18 verses one through 12. After Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, 
also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with police from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, who are you looking for? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into, your into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the soldiers, their officer, and the Jewish police arrested Jesus and bound him. So our question to, to hold for ourselves is, what vision for the work of abolition does this text offer? You know, the thing that, um, two things stand out to me relative to the question. Yeah. One is the empire was looking for Jesus of Nazareth, a person connected to a particular land and body of people. Mm. The writer doesn't tie Jesus to Nazareth when the writer sort of gives the narrative. And I think that the vision for this work of abolition is to remember that our work of abolition is always tied to land and people. Mm. We, we may respond, we are doing anti-racist work, but actually we, we can only do anti-racist and anti-oppression work in context to a particular geographic area with a particular set of people. The other thing that stands out to me is verse 12, and it just hit me when I read it, and I'll read it again for drama effect. Thank you. So the soldiers, their officer, and the Jewish police arrested Jesus and bound him. I think the work calls us to pay attention to the ways in which all of these systems that we are trying to dismantle from the inside out are, are woven together, threaded with a very precise and strategic needle mm. that binds us into them. Mm. 
Mm. We are conscripted into systems of supremacy. We are conscripted into supremacy culture. And we need, we need to be like Jesus and outfox the empire. Because if we don't, we, we will begin to participate in our own conscripting into these systems. I, mean, I tell people all the time, I left my faculty job in Berkeley, California, Queer Utopia, because I no longer wanted to participate in self-perpetuating elitism. Mm. And, and my faculty post at Duke is very particular and, and I don't stray from that particularity yeah. because what's important to me is the fact that the Tennessee legislature, legislature body, legislative body will further criminalize our unhoused friends. And, and we do a lot of work with those who are on the streets. That's what matters to me. I could talk all day about affect theory, black pessimism, et cetera. What matters to me is whether my friends have a home. And, you know, after this recent flood, we lost two people. Mm. It, unreported, but, yeah, you know. So we, you know, to be faithful in the small things is to pay attention to the ways in which we are conscripted into these systems. That binding happens whether or not we're paying attention to it. Right. Yeah, I really appreciate the naming of rooting in place too, and and how Jesus, in the beginning of this text, goes to a garden. A really like, yes, Jesus was waiting to be found and wanted to go somewhere where people could find him. But part of me is like, did you want a glimpse of loveliness, of something beautiful, of something beyond the ugly horror that was unfolding as as that rooting image that there is more like abolition to me is holding that vision of possibility it doesn't have to be like this right. you don't have to live in a world where people are unhoused while others have billions upon billions of dollars we don't have to live in a world where we deny trans people's right to exist where we criminalize sex work where we go after people that are, you know, it, it, having a hard time with their employment, right? Like there's just so many ways in which we are called to see the garden amidst the concrete, yeah. for lack of a better metaphor. But I look at this text and I think the whole text to me, I wonder what, would this story be if there were no police? What if the police had been abolished before this text? Um, I think it shows so clearly the devastation that state-sanctioned violence can cause. And I know there's a whole lot of complicated theology about whether Jesus had to be crucified, but I was at a conference a couple weeks ago with Lenny Duncan speaking as a keynote, and he asked a very 
a powerful question of did Jesus have to die? And his answer was, I don't think he did. And what if, what would our faith look like if we saw another way for this story to unfold beyond the police and policing of Jesus's body and message? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't have three more years to talk about this, but. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, you know, the rest of the passage, there's so much, you know, the system, I mean, we just see the systemic violence, you know, and, and I, you know, I sort of have a similar question. Um, what, um, what might our culture look like if we rehabilitate processes of accountability through relationship? You know, our, our justice system in government and in interpersonal life is punitive. It's, it's rooted in being punitive. It's not rooted in transformation or transformative justice. And, you know, what might our cultural body look like if we actually rehabilitated networks of trust to actually practice accountability in relationship? How could that transform our behaviors with ourselves and one another and culturally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, because I think punitive systems of justice are premised on only knowing this much right. about you, the worst day of your life, perhaps. Right. The, the hardest moment you've ever had to go through. Um, and universalizing who you are based on this moment without any additional understanding of what people have been through, what they've had to do to survive, what, you know, I, I, I was thinking as you were talking, like, we may not be able to stop betrayal from happening because we are human and we are navigating a complicated web of our desires, someone else's desire, you know what I mean? Like they're, we're, we're enmeshed in difficult systems. So betrayal may eventually disappear, but what we do with betrayal or when betrayal happens, you know, could, what would it have been like for, for Judas not to have to betray Jesus in that way? Or if he did to, to immediately seek a system of, of, restitution of relationship rather than hiding behind the people who came to arrest him. You know, I think we often, we often talk about betrayal as the opposite of loyalty. Mm. And I, and, and we have to spend more time on practices of betrayal rather than thinking imaginatively about loyalty. And you know, I'm writing this new book on um, bodies, um, embodiment, and democracy. Mm. And it's primarily a book on relationship to self and other. And um, in, in the context of 
democracy and and what whatnot. So it's a sort of political theology thing, but written through story and narrative. Anyways, it it has me thinking a lot about what constitutes a relationship. Mm. And I think relationships need three things. Okay. Honesty, transparency, and vulnerability. And these three things, if they are pillars to relationship, if they're co-constitutive, it creates conditions for intimacy. And intimacy is what enables us to rehabilitate networks of trust or create practices of loyalty. Right. And I think when, when we're looking at this text, sort of with that perspective, when we read betrayal, we can see, we can read into that as that Jesus and Judas did not share this network of trust in the same way as Jesus shared with others. And because of that, there was no intimacy. There was no ability to be honest or transparent or vulnerable. There was only opportunity for betrayal, mm. Mm. which is sort of a misalignment of relationship. Yeah, that's powerful. It's really powerful. And I notice as, you know, I'm thinking about those three things, three conditions of relationship, transparency, vulnerability, and trust. Honesty. Honesty. Sorry. Um, I think those are three things that white supremacy so twists mm -hmm. and makes very difficult. And I think, um, you know, heteropatriarchy also twists in that way, like as a arm of white supremacy around vulnerability as weakness in some communities, you know, um, honesty as also, you know, like weakness, because if you show all your cards, someone might take advantage of you, right? The suspicion or mistrust, it's um, the, the depth of presence it takes to live out those three things to in relationship takes active maintenance and work and, and practicing um, until it gets easier. It's like a muscle, but you know, um, I think that's, that's really right. That there was a moment where I wonder when the moment was when Judas and relation and Jesus's relationship got just a little bit askew it's other than the trajectory just kind of yeah 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 and that to me goes back to paying attention to the small things yeah I, yeah i think it's vital um there, i think there is something to faithfulness and i know that language is loaded but we we have a garden of humanity and a lot of the crop are being are infested with the disease of white supremacy white body supremacy 
supremacy culture. Not just white supremacy, not just racial supremacy, but economic supremacy and so forth. And we need to tend to this garden and be attuned to one another in ways that, you know, protects the, the most vulnerable parts of the garden of humanity. Yeah. Yeah, I'm aware of, you know, in, in looking at organic matter, like trees talk to each other underground. They, they can sense when there's a tree that's sick. They can sense when there's an incoming infestation and make decisions based on how to protect the young saplings or um, the concept of the nursing log, the tree that falls to make room for, or to, to like start the process anew for new trees to come forward. Um, to me that, how do we square that? This is just getting back to like, how do we square that with like this idea of Jesus needing to die? Mm -hmm. That it wasn't about maybe necessarily him. It has been twisted into a really intense sacrificial theology. And coupled with this idea of certain bodies disposable, mm -hmm. that sacrifice has been made holy and disposing of others has, you know, has its own sacred place within our Christian um, system. But thinking about this in an, or, in, in an organic matter way, that Jesus is the nursing log, the compost, the, the, the bringing something new. I think that changes it deeply and takes us to something like abolition, that it's an act of creation. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Robin, wow. Well, the last question we think about for ourselves is, is there something that we want to hold or take with us as a result of our conversation that feels yeah, like we want to we want to keep keep close to us as a result of our our chat. Well, I'm I'm already thinking and sort of meditating on, um, you know, Jesus and the like the Lenny Duncan question: Did Jesus have to die? But but you just said. And it's escaping me. You just talked about um, the uh, the image that is coming to my mind is when we celebrate communion or when we celebrate a shared meal. Are we participating in? in the composting that Jesus began. Mm -hmm. And, and what does that mean for the work that we want to do in the world? Mm. Yeah. Which may sound very strange and weird to people, but you know, like, What does it mean to compost Jesus outside of penal substitutionary atonement? 
Right. What if what if our what if our atonement theory was a theory of composting Jesus? What what if it was found in ecology and ecosystem? How would that shape and shift our practices? Right. That may be that may be way too far for people, but I think it's you know, again, it goes back to one small question. It's not a small question, but one question to me turns turns the whole frame on its head. Mm-hmm. And abolition is about realizing we can turn the frame. Right. We don't have to stick with this same old frame. Right. And um, feeling empowered and called to do something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm I'm in this church because people turned the frame around queer and trans folks participating in the life to, as, as being a gift to the life of the church, right? And, and we're I think we're collectively trying to turn the frame yeah. <laughs> in yeah. different ways. Yeah. Um, sometimes sometimes a big turn, sometimes a micro turn, but yeah, I'm really I'm really feeling called to your question of noticing our bindings, mm. noticing our relationships. And I mean, coming through a time of deep isolation and, you know, it, it can become easier to forget those relationships and um, where those need tending and intending <laughs> where the intentions can be. Yeah. Um, I can get very, if, if it's on my computer, that's what I'm, that's what I'm seeing. Like, yeah, very uh, tunnel visiony. Um, and I think Good Friday itself is an invitation to notice to notice what's dying. Mm-hmm. To look at the organic. If we look, think about the organic matter, what's dying, and that's okay it's time has come and what's dying that we need to re-nourish, rehydrate, reinvigorate, like you were saying, not just in ourselves, but in our communities and our relationships. Yeah. Um, so I deeply appreciate this conversation and the, the depth of willingness to explore the smallest part of the text to the largest implications. Um, you and I, we can get into holy trouble together. And I appreciate that. Well, I'm grateful for the invitation. It's always a joy to talk with you. Yeah. Thank you. All right, y'all. But we appreciate you. And um, we'll be back next week at 2 p.m. on Tuesday. All right. Take care though. Till then. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study. This podcast is a project of More Light Presbyterian. Tune in to our Facebook page at Morelight Presby to participate in the live conversation Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. Talk next week. Bye.